Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hey, this is Eva. This is Christy. And this is Chloe. We're so excited to be sitting down at the table with you today. We are three friends cross-country who continue to get together over the interwebs on this podcast to talk about food and life and what is bringing them joy, what is bringing us joy to our spirits and how um, we find each day. So we're, we are sitting down today um, to talk about a book. This season, we have each been delving into what we call home and where we find ourselves. I'm in California and Eva is in Arkansas and Christy is out in the Northeast. And so we wanted to look around and see what was going on in our communities, where people, how people were engaging with food and what's bringing people meaning and where those conversations are are overlapping. And so today we're doing our Books and Bites episode. Our book tonight is The Last Lobster. The Last Lobster. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) So we all have a big heart for the Northeast. We've each spent some time there. And Christy was awesome enough to bring this book into our lives. And let me tell you, we gave her a little bit of resistance on this one. <laughs> right, Eva? Just a, just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Is it Christy? Nothing personal. Nothing against lobsters. Nothing against lobsters. But why am I spending my afternoons reading about lobsters, Christy? Because <laughs> it's so cool. Okay. So little known fact, or it might be a widely known fact, although it would be weird <laughs> that it was widely known. Um I was at one point in my life on track to be a marine biologist. Um, And in fact, in high school, I was the team captain of our Marine Ocean Sciences Bowl science trivia team. Christy, Uh, that's amazing. I totally thought you were going to share the fact about how lobsters urinate out of their heads. I mean, that does happen. (laughs) But... (laughs) Or how they were originally fed to prisoners. Right. That's but true. But this is, this is so much more interesting. So is this part of why you chose this book for us to read? I mean, partially, yeah. I'm as, as I'm thinking about where I'm going in my career, I also am reflecting on where I've been. Hmm. Um, and I, in a way, uh, it sort of flunked out of my major <laughs> in marine science. Um and started to explore the arts and then that sort of shifted into theology and that's kind of where I am right now Um, but yeah just doing a lot of thinking about my past and and where I've been but as we're thinking about this season and our roots and where we've been grown like homegrown Mm. what that means to be homegrown uh, this book really rose to the to the top of uh, where where I've been Um, and where I'm coming from. Uh, so we'll get a, a, a bit more into the theme uh, and a little bit of, of what we're going to be talking about tonight. But first, I want to ask, what, uh, what's been your first encounter with these 
clawed crustaceans. What, what's been your first, oh, what, yeah. what's your lobster story? Okay. Mine is very vibrant in my memory. Um, so growing up on the West Coast, I mean, we definitely were near the best ocean um, and everything. But uh, I did not grow up with a ton of seafood. We used to have little shrimp cocktails. That was kind of our family's thing once in a while. My dad was really um, sweet. He he really got into the meals that he would prepare for, for us when we were growing up. And um, he would do these little shrimp cocktail bowls for us with little pieces of lettuce underneath and cocktail sauce. But one day, my dad got this huge idea that he was going to introduce us to lobster and it was just going to be the best meal ever. So he actually ordered a box of lobster, live living, living lobsters from the (laughs) East Coast. And they show up on the front porch and he brings them inside and he's so proud and he's so ready to like get these things on the table. He's going to just blow off our socks off and it's going to be the best thing ever. He forgets, I think, that he has um, like a nine-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter who love animals. And so these little guys are squealing. I know that it's not actually squealing, but (laughs) for us and our imaginations, (laughs) we hear the sound that they emit when they go into the hot water. And we were mortified. And we just picked at the meal and like weren't that into it. And... So let's just say that that was the only time we ever had lobster, I think. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure I've had like a bite off of someone's plate since then, but I've just never really had lobster. I've never been super into seafood. Um, I've had some salmon, but, and love our, our shrimp, that's for sure. But that's kind of, that's kind of the extent of my lobster exposure until moving to the Northeast and then getting a little bit more exposure, um, spending some uh some time in Maine and having clam chowder and that sort of thing so that sort of reopened that world but I will always remember that story yeah that is vivid yeah it's a little bit of a traumatic experience yeah yeah it was real sea to plate (laughs) (laughs) yeah I don't I have a similar I don't really have like a single story of a lobster and, you know, there's that video that's, like, danger of the single story. So better to have multiple stories. But, yeah, I, I think I can count on one hand the times I've eaten lobster. And I like it. I, I'm not, I'm not like, a lover of the flavor. But I do love seafood. Um, my husband is also allergic to lobster. So we can't really access a lot of it. But it's funny because he lived in Maine when we met. Wow. And... So that was sort of what kind of redeemed is not the right word, but there's just, it's such a cultural icon of Maine and New England. And I remember going to this little lobster shack in the town where he was living at the time and just seeing the line like wrap around the street and um, thinking like, this is a really big deal to a lot of people. And um yeah, and just the the competition among lots of Boston restaurants for who has the best lobster roll and um yeah, so but I, I remember as a kid being really 
feeling a lot of empathy for the lobsters in the tank, like at the grocery store and the, the fish section at the market and wondering what their little lives were like. Um, so yeah, but it was, it was cool to learn, to learn more about lobster and climate and all of that in this book as well. Yeah, so the book, we should get to the book as well. So the book is called The Last Lobster, and it's written by Christopher White. And it's a book, it's basically a, a really neat investigative journalistic view into the boom and bust cycle of the lobster industry in Maine. Um, so just to give a, a little bit of background about where I've been, so uh there's this amazing organization in southeastern Connecticut called Project Oceanology. And I had been with them from the age of 10. Um, I had started going to a uh, spring break camp through their program. And then from there, started going to three-week summer day camps where we would do um, lots of scientific research and like I was just a total dork, and it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. One of the things that we would do at the very end of each session, each of those three weeks, is we would take our research vessel across Long Island Sound, and we would camp out at Montauk Point, which has absolutely zero facilities. <laughs> um, there's very little... Uh, there's nothing there. Um, so we would pack tents. We would uh, use the sand dunes as bathrooms. Like it was it was pretty mm -hmm. it, that was my <laughs> deepest understanding of what it means to go camping. Um, and we would also pick up lobster pots along the way and have lobster as like 10, 12, 13 year olds on the beach. And we would uh, boil the lobsters over a campfire and then crack open the shells and throw the shells behind us into the uh, surf and the surf would take the shells away. Wow. It was just wow. something like, I don't know, like it's so, it's mm -hmm. such a vivid memory. And I would do two to three sessions of this camp all summer long mm. up until I was in high school uh, and then when I graduated from high school, I would come back during the summers and help out. So like this was a huge component of my childhood. Wow. Um, and what's really, really fascinating is that in this book, it talks about how the lobsters have moved from Long Island Sound because Long Island Sound is getting too warm for them and yeah. they've moved up and along the coast. So there's... There's a lot of history that I'm seeing in this book, actually, uh, like firsthand. It's just really, really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, that was pretty alarming when uh, Christopher White was talking a little bit about how sea animals and the water sort of magnifies what's projected to happen on land from the effects of climate change. So because the water raises temperature, I believe, at a faster rate, and the animals correspond because temperature has such a huge impact on their their life cycle and their lifespan and their rate of reproduction and their respiratory rates, like all of these things that even they live within this small frame of temperature. Um, so that was pretty, really he approaches it from 
he approaches the whole conversation around lobsters from a lens of of climate change and it was a pretty mm-hmm. relevant read i think for for kind of the bigger conversations going on right now yeah yeah one thing that really struck me was he talks a lot about the gentrification of a lot of these communities in maine and i mean he writes a lot about how you have to go further and further north to experience quote-unquote real maine and I, I guess by real maine he means this kind of lobster industry and just the ways that town life revolve around that industry as opposed to sort of your coastal um I don't know sort of touristy beachy industries um yeah and I love the way that he described that as like you know that the pickup trucks with the main license plates are the fishermen and yeah. then the yes. BMWs with out-of-state plates are like the tourists. You can actually see, you can physically see the gentrification happening. And the yeah. lobster trucks or um, the lobster traps in the front yard mm-hmm. that if mm-hmm. the the houses closest to the water have the traps in the yard, that's a sign that that's still an active fishing town. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was really interesting because he talked a lot about uh, Penobscot Bay, which unknowingly I had actually been to. So three or four days after graduating from uh, graduate school, I took a road trip up to Penobscot Bay, uh, Maine, and had a lobster roll at a place called Bayview, which apparently is the best lobster roll in the world <laughs> so it's it's incredible because he mentions this there are so many little connections that I found in this book that were just so really really beautiful and um, to think about where I've been and and to think about the the lifestyle of these fishermen they they truly are transient and they have to be um, and they also have to be resilient um, you know the boom and bust cycle of lobstering is a little bit terrifying when you actually look at the numbers and you don't know that you're headed for a cliff until it's too late. So uh, our theme tonight is really about resiliency and, and how we saw resiliency play out in these stories within this book. Basically, the author has taken a year to spend in each of these fishing villages and he breaks it up by season and shows sort of how the fishing industry changes with the season and then sort of uh, um, extrapolates, extrapolates from there what might could happen. Christy, I was wondering if we could pause real quick and I want to know what your bite is tonight. My bite? (laughs) Is there a better way to phrase that? (laughs) Um, so my bite is, uh, um, well, to be truthful, I don't have a bite. I didn't have time to make it. Oh, I'm sorry. You're also engaging with B-Y-T-E-S. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Corny, corny, corny. <laughs> Speaking of corn, I'm having some popcorn. Hey. <laughs> that was my original plan was to make popcorn 
the original plan was to have a uh, Boy Scout. Yes, Boy Scout uh, kettle corn. I was trying to remember Yum. what variety I have. Oh, yes. wow. kettle corn. Wow. Kettle corn is so good. Nice. Well, you totally inspired me with the popcorn idea. And for I some reason, that popcorn. also kind of reminds me of Maine. I have no idea why. Really? Yeah. I think, okay, so I put smoked paprika mm. and nutritional yeast mm. and salt, sea salt on it. So it kind of has like a, yeah, it's reminded me, I guess, (laughs) um, of just some fun seasonings and I'm having it with a beer in my Sam Adams cup. So I'm trying to connect to my, um, the Boston portion of my heart. (laughs) (laughs) My spouse makes popcorn and coconut oil and puts nutritional yeast and, sea salt and some other seasonings and it is really really good that does sound it's really the good spot. so good i love popcorn i've recently gotten into popcorn and watching a movie like from the comfort of my own home oh, <laughs> it's the best there's nothing better there's nothing better what are you are you biting with us eva I did some pre-biting okay. before we recorded. I had some applesauce, actually, <laughs> and some slices of mozzarella cheese because <laughs> I was feeling, I was feeling the cheese. There you go. There you go. Urge. <laughs> um. Yeah. Recently, I did have some really delicious crab. Mm. Um, my mom made some crab when I was visiting her recently and definitely reminded me of the east coast um yeah i love seafood i i could eat it every day Mm. and often do eat it every day or almost every day seafood is really really good for you and it's something that uh i didn't really get into for the longest time because i didn't know how to cook it like yeah me too you know lobster is one thing like you just boil the suckers like that's fine but it's not something (laughs) you're gonna have on a weekday night like that just doesn't happen right and um shrimp I don't know I don't know man I'm just kind of bored with shrimp I don't know why yeah agreed and it can be really labor-intensive if you're peeling it yourself oh yeah yeah um and salmon like I'll do salmon but it's not something like maybe I'll do it once a month maybe Um, right I don't know it's hard it is hard and as someone who cares about sustainability and trying as best Mm. as I can to eat sustainably when you start doing the research about seafood that's actually ethically caught and not overfished like there's actually a pretty small amount that is available like most of what you find in the store at least in Arkansas which is a totally landlocked mm-hmm. place the most plentiful seafood you're going to find is catfish which as I think I talked about in my first episode here um is delicious and very meaty and you can do some different things with it but once in a while you just want some I don't know some cod or some salmon or some Mm-hmm. something a little nicer and it's harder to find that really blew me away the the conservation measures that they do have in place for the lobster mm-hmm. um the fact yeah. that they 
they measure the lobsters to make sure that they um, have had enough time to grow and mature and that they throw back any that they actually mark so that they're never used or eaten um, females who are egg bearing and they throw them back in the water um, and it was like wow do they really they really do they really take these seriously and it was talking about how in the town they really watch out um, because the lobster are there is it's their livelihood there's like this real partnership and so um, the author talked a little bit about how they almost sort of shun someone if they are known to break those rules, mm. which blew me away that that is being taken seriously. And I think kind of goes back to that point of resiliency that you're talking about, Christy. Um, just the, yeah, that relationship between um, people who fish lobster and then the lobster and... Um, the I don't know can you say more about that yeah I think um part of part of what breeds this resiliency is not only treating the lobster right but also treating each other right so towards the end of the book there's a chapter called tragedy of the commons and it talks about how most Maine fishermen are not churchgoers but they do have in in one particular small town uh, there's a church where all these musicians get together on a Sunday morning uh, and, quote, the theory is all sins will be absolved with a little harmony, end quote. Wow, and I, that's beautiful. I just love that. Wow. I absolutely I know, love that. I loved that, that too. Wow. And so what it, what it really reminds me of, again, is home. So my dad plays banjo and my brother mm-hmm. plays guitar and uh, anytime we have a family gathering, we get together with a couple of family friends. They always break out their instruments. And it's, it's one of those homey feelings that I just absolutely love. So this chapter just really dives into that and talks about how um, we're nothing if we don't have each other, right? Like if one uh, fisherman goes rogue and starts decimating the population of these lobsters, then like everyone is done. We, we can't live that way. Um, mm. And I also loved uh, the way that the author, the way that Christopher White talks about this being a church. I mean, multiple times he uses various imagery. Um, he talks about offerings of raspberry jam. Uh, he mm. talks about um, cigars and the smoke drifting, uh, almost like incense in a church. I don't know. I just, I, I really, I really, really love this chapter. And isn't that, that just resonates a lot with, um, what, uh, so the church I go to on Sundays, um, the pastor this week was just talking about kind of, um, reminding or reframing kind of, uh, we get stuck sometimes with the idea of sin as being sort of like a moral, a morality checklist mm. and reframing it back to that sort of the root that sin comes from, that idea of alienation from, mm. from God, from one another, yep. from the world <laughs> and creation. And um, that that sums it up so succinctly that 
um, the, the absolving of sin through a little harmony, through relationality and, um, it's not a singular note. It's the blending of the notes. It's the blending of what we can bring to the table Mm. and just how that's lived out in that kind of out of necessity, but also I think out of choice in the towns, um, these more traditional towns, how they really have to watch out for one another, like you're saying. Um, And I think the last, or one other piece that stood out was he describes one of the lobster men as having this beautiful garden. Him and his wife have just this lush garden and um, they're eating the lobster that they're grabbing from the sea. They kind of have that, um, that privilege really. And, so he's t- describing this meal where the lobster, they're all sitting at his kitchen table of the lobster man and um, the lobster is so succulent they don't even need butter and they have these thick slabs of tomato um, that doesn't need anything else on it because of its richness and he just talks about how for the um, this lobster man who's also a musician, how he has his art and his, um, his vocation as a lobster man and how there's like such deep satisfaction and contentment in that. Mm-hmm. Not to say he doesn't have his, you know, regular ups and downs or challenges or anything else, but um, it's a very different way of approaching life, I think. Like this deep um, contentment that really struck me. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about the word vocation too. And so much of the work I do with young people is around vocational discernment and. So often there's a fixation on what does this mean for what job I'm going to have someday, but it's actually, when we talk about vocation, it's a much broader and deeper thing, I think, and I love the idea that this book highlights, which is one's vocation being so intimately connected with the land and the sea, um, and just how delicate the relationship is there, and the reliance on community for it to flourish um it's not just this person didn't just I don't think I'm presuming this person did not just wake up one day and say I'm gonna do this I'm gonna be a lobsterman I mean maybe there is decision making there but it's just part of this particular geographical area and I think that gets back to this whole theme that we've been talking about this season is what's going on in the particular geographical areas and how does that affect culture and community and Mm. the decisions that people make there's a really great uh, parable is what they call it towards the end of the book from an ecologist uh, named Garrett Hardin and he put this together in 1968 it's called the tragedy of the commons Um, and so I'll just read a small portion from the book this parable imagines a pasture which is open to all it's a sea of grass several herders graze their sheep there motivated to expand their flocks infinitely if possible even though it is not in the best interest of the community quickly each animal added to the turf degrades the commons by a small amount eating the grass leaving the soil bare the herder receives all the benefits of an additional ram or ewe while the damage to the commons is suffered by all. If all the owners continue the pattern of overuse, the turf becomes overgrazed, the commons is destroyed, and therein lies the tragedy. 
each owner is locked into so into short-term selfish behavior that causes long-term environmental harm to everyone. And one of the things that I continue to see, just not even in this book, but in life, um, when you pull on one thread of being, of understanding, inevitably it pulls on all other threads of being and understanding. And mm. we are all so intimately connected. And I think that's what this book is telling us is that even though we do live in delicate balance, we are resilient. Um, and mm. there are many miraculous things that we've seen happen in this world, not only in the natural world, but also human um, in terms of relationships that have been restored. So there is resiliency there, but it's it's definitely a delicate balance. I was wondering, I think this theme of interconnection is something that comes up a lot on our podcast and is so crucial. And at the same time, I know in my day-to-day life, um, out of habit <laughs> and choices and patterning, um, I so easily kind of shift away from that. Um from living out of that truth and I was wondering is there like one action or one concrete expression um that helps that helps either of you sort of return to that truth in your daily rhythms so uh in in one area of my life, I am a pastor. I have a lot of areas of life these days, but um, in one area of my life, I'm a pastor, and a lot of my work uh, revolves around visitations. We have uh, a lot of folks who are not able to get to church, a lot of folks who are experiencing illness or loss, and being present with people in the midst of those moments is... um, is grounding it's difficult it's heart-wrenching in a lot of ways but uh, it helps to balance out the delicate nature of the situation Um, just to to know that someone's there for you um, means so much in the moment so I think I'm reminded of that every time and I'm humbled by it every time that, that I visit someone and recognizing that this is sacred work. This is not a very well-formed thought, but one, one thing that comes to mind, so I've been doing a lot of work, I would say over the past couple of years, just a lot of different types of body work and um, yoga has become incredibly important and just transformative practice for me and it often just looks like a 20 minute YouTube video with um, my favorite yogi yoga with Adrian who you first told me about Chloe um, I love and Adrian. <laughs> yes she's so awesome and down to earth mm-hmm. and she didn't pay me to say this but um, if she wants to she can <laughs> but yeah and I think about just how and for years I was really um I don't want to say really skeptical but I just you know living in Boston I would see all these 
particularly women like carrying their yoga mats on the train and they'd get off and they'd go to a studio and I just sort of thought of it as like this trendy thing that I thought a lot of like upper middle class white ladies did and um, I didn't quite understand like why do so many people do this and why do so many people love it and then I started doing it myself and it's like oh this is this is not exercise like it is but it's um, it's a deeply spiritual practice and so much of that is the interconnectedness between the mind and the body which sounds really um, like often I'll hear people say that and I'm like what does that even really mean but and the grounding of the breath and moving that learning that the postures and the movement is really rooted in the breath it's grounded in the breath and the um the breath is not a byproduct of the movement but actually fuels the movement mm-hmm. um and being able to carry that mentality and that posture off the mat in my daily life has been a really really important thing um and I think also just trying to bring that into my work and into my relationships inviting people to ground in their breath and remember that they're not just disembodied brains I think often it's very easy to just spend so much time in the in the headspace and um, forget that we even have bodies that um, that are doing a lot without our even thinking about it so that's just one thing that kind of comes to mind when I think about interconnectedness thank you first of all for both sharing um those are really helpful examples and I think something that has been surprising me lately um so I'm working right now we've mentioned before with bread and it's something that um in my role, we have this dream of creating something around bread. And I find myself often, um, I find that as I, you know, um, try to communicate this dream that hasn't totally actualized yet. Um, and just kind of, as I, as I face others questions about it and, um, have to sort of re-explain it um, again and again sometimes I can feel discouraged like what are we trying to do with bread <laughs> like mm-hmm. why why do we keep coming back to bread and um, I think all those questions are really good and it's really great practice for me to have to remember um, again and again but when I am most reminded about why we keep coming back to bread is I have found um, the last couple of weeks as I've been baking more I've I have a lot of loaves of bread and so I've been giving it away to like anyone who will take it (laughs) because um, sort of my nightmare is that it goes bad and sometimes I have to throw a couple loaves in the compost because I can't get it to people fast enough Mm -hmm. um but the delight, like that exchange when when I gift bread, and I know it's the same when I receive food, I feel the same thing. Um, 
there's something like so surprising and authentic in that exchange that reminds me it brings me back to that to the whole point of interconnection and like why 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 we keep coming back to this idea and um you know it doesn't have to be bread it can be lobster it can be breath it can be so many so many gifts and channel ways that we have in our life available to us that I know I forget about all the time um so I think that I need those reminders and that's been really helpful for me Mm. and just brought me deep joy um to be able to interact with people in that way and to have um like to even have bread to give that day like is such a gift in itself that I there's real joy in giving and then as always I love when I get food so (laughs) um yeah I think that's been a reminder of interconnection lately yeah and this this interconnection doesn't just it's not just something that we see on a human level but also all throughout creation uh Mm -hmm. and it it is such a delicate balance I mean Christopher White talks so much about you pull one thread and all the other threads um change and shift in Mm -hmm. in reaction to that and and we see it in in so many different arenas so this was a really really incredible book um that I I felt like I was taking a a trip back in time for Mm. me to just Mm. remember my youth and remember where I've been um and I hope that it was uh, a book that you both enjoyed in terms of sort of like transporting you back to the east coast Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, absolutely yeah yeah any other thoughts on on this piece and and what what might we take from this and and learn from this uh as we go forward I think for me it'll just keep being that idea of contentment holding that always in balance with growth and dreaming but just that deep um joy and sense of enoughness that that lobsterman shared yeah for me it's to keep asking questions about how does this affect my life because it does um how do warming oceans impact people that I know um people that I don't know and will never meet but um yeah and just I think there's so many ways in which we allow our lives to be so compartmentalized and um so I love I just love that I love that we chose to read a book about lobsters and um want to just keep finding ways to take seemingly you know, topics or, or themes that don't connect directly to my life and be invited to, to make those connections. Mm. Um, yeah. And another book, it reminds me of is braiding sweetgrass, Mm. which you may have both heard me talk about, but there's so much in there about how our lives are so intimately connected with things like fungi and lichens and, um, just how much of the natural world is is a gift not just for 
for other non-human beings, but for us too, um, and how easy it is to miss that. So I think I'll just keep taking some of those themes away. Yeah, I just, I think one of the things that I'll be taking from this piece is just remembering, um, remembering sort of the very tactile moments of my childhood and remembering the very tactile moments of what may seem ordinary, but, uh, in in reality is actually quite sacred so I just want to close with a little vignette of a scene from from this fisherman church that the author describes we are sitting in dockside books so it's a bookstore and all of these musicians have their guitars out their mandolins their fiddles banjos and uh just to to give a final scene at this point, a yellow lab barges through the front door and inspects the room, licking all of the seated musicians, knocking over coffee cups with his tail. The spilled coffee blends nicely with the paint on the floor. Satisfied with his havoc, the lab exits with gusto, nuzzling one of the fishermen on his way out. I just, I absolutely love that scene, that idea of something unexpected and beautiful coming in creating a little bit of chaos, but happy chaos, and then taking that joy out into the world. So as we close tonight, um, may all of your uh, beautiful chaos be recognized in all that you encounter. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes, or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard Epworth United Methodist Church, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford Martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully yours. <laughs>